Uh, before we go any for further, I want to uh, just point out, you know, the, the question, have I done anything wrong? And the answer, no, I not anything wrong. Uh, it's a reminder, you know, you, you, the Bible teaches that we are, our condition is sinners. That is to say, we don't, we are, we are born into the human race and need Christ to forgive us and save us from our sins. And sometimes I remind people, you know, because it kind of, let's be honest, occasionally people say, hey, no, I'm good. I'm good. I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm good. I'm, I'm a good person. I do good things. Okay. <laughs> Uh, one of the uh, great proofs of our the truth that we are sinners is that we don't have to be taught to lie. You ever thought about that? It's one of the first things you do in life is say, I didn't do that. Your parents know you did it. You know you did it. Nobody had to teach you to lie. Because we are sinners, we know the privilege of salvation in Christ. What God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves in sending his son to die on the cross for you and me and raising him from the grave so we could have eternal life, so that we could be children of God. It's because of Christ and being in Christ that we become children of God. I hope you've done that. If not, at the end of the hour, I'll give you an opportunity to trust Christ today here and at home. So keep that in mind and listen to what he has to say to you today. If you have your Bible, uh, pick it up and find with me Genesis chapter 12 and just hold your place there for a moment. We're not going there yet, not going to read it just yet, but go ahead and find Genesis chapter 12, the first book of the Bible and the 12th chapter. Uh, today we're going to enter into a message series that will take us through to Easter where we're going to put the events of the Middle East what's happening in the Middle East, we're going to do our best to put those in biblical context. We're not going to try to answer all the questions about the conflict in the Middle East. Uh, we're not going to try to address every detail or every philosophy or every theology, but we want to look at the Bible and put it in a biblical and historical context the best way that we can. And the starting point for all of this, the thing to remember throughout this series is that God is the God of all nations. The Bible says this explicitly. God is the God of the nations. He's in control of history. He's in charge of history. Nothing surprises him. That doesn't mean that every good, everything that happens in history or among the nations is good. It means that God is always good and there is a good outcome to his plan, always. It means that history is not circular. History doesn't actually repeat itself, but human beings being sinners, we tend to do the same things over and over again. What it means is that history is moving in a line from a beginning to a conclusion at which God himself decides to wrap things up and, have a, and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what the Bible teaches. So always tuck away in this series, the back of your mind, uh, that God is, is in charge of the nations and God is in charge of history. But the other thing is quite obvious is that wars happen all the time and they are, conflict is a continuing presence uh, in every nation in our lives, whether we are actually at war with another nation or whether internally we are in conflict. And conflicts tend to escalate. Each year for the last 17 years, the Institute for Economics and Peace, a nonprofit, nonpartisan institute st that studies global peace, 
Well, for 17 years, they have published at the end of the year a global peace index uh, that shows uh, if peace, not so much conflict, but peace, has increased or de decreased among 163 nations on earth. Now, they, they picked these 163 nations because 99% of the world's population live in these 163 nations. And you won't be surprised to find out that at no time in 17 years has, has any of these 100, or all of these 163 nations been without conflict. They measure it based on the rise and fall of peace, but what they're actually measuring is the rise and fall of conflict. At the end of 2023, they issued their report, and there had been an increase in conflict, or as they put it, a decrease in peace, in 95 of the 163 countries that they studied. Christians, this should not surprise us. Didn't Jesus tell us? As, the end, as we progress toward the end of history, there will be wars and rumors of war, and that will escalate as time goes on. Uh, the, the, in our sinful human condition, we live under the fantasy and illusion that human beings themselves can solve the problem. We can create peace all over the world, and, and we will all live in harmony, and we will all live under a big unicorn or rainbow, and, and it will be just wonderful for everybody. The Bible teaches we are sinners desperately in need of a Savior, and as such, there will be conflict. It doesn't mean peace will not ebb and flow, because indeed, as, as Jesus taught Christians, be peacemakers. He called us to be peacemakers in our relationships and in our community. But my point is, as sinners, we need to understand as history moves toward its conclusion, as God moves us in that direction, we can anticipate wars. And the Middle East conflict is the core, the central point of all of these wars and has been in biblical history as well. This morning as we begin this series, we're going to go back to the beginning of where different nationalities and ethnicities began to clash, uh, erupting in what we see now and what continues in the violence and the war in the Middle East. So very much this morning, we're going to return to the very beginning, which is the call of Abraham. And the reason we do this is there are two ethnic groups, people groups, Jews and Muslims, and three religions, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, that trace their history to Abraham. All three of us claim Abraham as our founder. Now, throughout this series, we'll return to this, and you'll get a little more explanation of what that means, why it is, why there's conflict between these different religions and people groups. Uh, but that's why this is our starting point. It, it's the call of Abraham, as we will read, the call of Abraham to be the father of a nation of God's people. Before we read the text, let's, let's give a little background to, to coming into chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. Uh, if you know your Bible history, you know that uh, chapter 11 chronicles the Tower of Babel. And God judged the people who were building the Tower of Babel, trying to reach the heavens to, to make an idol, to make themselves God. He judged them by dispersing them across the world and confusing their languages. And right away after that happens, we're introduced to the parentage and the lineage of this man Abraham. And we have a fast-paced chronicle of his lineage and of his parentage that 
moves us all the way to finally his father, and then Abraham and his two brothers, and that they are living in the land of the Chaldeans in a place called Ur. And then in chapter 12, the action slows down dramatically because this is what God has preserved for us. This is where, how God wants us to understand the story. And what we're going to see this morning is that God makes three specific promises to Abraham. And what I want you to understand is these three promises are irrevocable. They are still in effect. And they are ultimately fulfilled in Christianity. Let me say that again. God makes three promises to Abraham. These three promises are irrevocable. The Apostle Paul himself says in Romans chapter 11 that the call of God and the gifts of God are irrevocable. Once God calls, that's his calling. So the, the call on Abraham and the promises of God, which, which never change, are irrevocable, but it's important to understand they are fulfilled in Christianity. So go there with me, Genesis chapter 12. As we look back into this pivotal moment, not just in biblical history, but in human history, that brings us forward even today to an understanding of the conflict that's happening in the Middle East. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. The Bible says, the Lord said to Abram, this is before he is renamed Abraham, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What we're going to do this morning as we walk through these promises of God is we're going to look at them in Abraham's context, and we're going to look at them in today's context, and we're going to apply them to a biblical theological context, that is to say, how they are fulfilled in Christianity, in you and in me. Again, God makes three specific promises to Abraham, and those promises are woven through Scripture. They are the groundwork for the people of God that began with Abraham, that became the Israelites, that ultimately became the church as Jesus came through that lineage. These three promises are irrevocable still applicable today, and fulfilled ultimately in Christianity. So as we begin the series, look, at me, look with me at these three promises of God that God made to Abraham. First is the promise of a place, a promise of a place. The Lord said to Abram, go from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you, to the land that I will show you. Even today, especially in the ancient Near East, but even today, a land identifies people. Having a land, having a place authenticates and identifies who the people are as a people. That's why a nation needs boundaries and borders. It makes them a nation. It makes them a people. But at this point, Abraham, remember, he and his father and his family and his lineage have been residents of another country, a Chaldean country, a place called Ur. So God calls to Abraham and says, I want you to leave that place and I want you to go to where I am showing you. This is going to be the land. Here's the difference. This is the land I am giving you because you are going to be the father of my people. So you're going to reside in the land I give you. Not the one your earthly father gave you, the one your heavenly father 
Gateview. Now let's park there for just a moment because you'll notice something very particular and very practical about the way God expects Abraham to respond. Notice this, first is the command to go. Everything hinges on obedience to God's call, to God's word. It's the same for you and me. If you ever wonder why it doesn't seem like God's doing much in your life, well, ask yourself, are you living in obedience? Are you doing what God has called you to do? And then secondly is separation and then a new location. You've got to separate Abraham from your family. You've got to leave Ur. And you've got to leave him behind. That's not who you are anymore. Then you're going to go to the location, the new location, the place, the land that I have provided for you. But notice what God says. The land that I will show you. He didn't give him coordinates. He didn't tell him to pull out Google Maps, he didn't, you know, the, the GPS wasn't there, he didn't draw a line for him. He said, the land that I will show you, the term show translates a word that means reveal to you as you go. You ever wanted God to say, just tell me everything now. I will obey if you'll tell me everything about where we're going. Nowhere in the Bible does that happen. Not just with Abraham, but nowhere else. Because God, in relationship with you, wants your obedience. Just like he did with Abraham. The land that I will show you. This is critically important because Abraham didn't have, an, he didn't have a, a, a way to know when he crossed into that land until God would tell him. He didn't have a way to know that he would own that land until God would tell him. He didn't have a way to know how the, 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 the events would play out until he followed God into the land. The land that God is talking about is what the Bible, the Old Testament, refers to as Canaan. Canaan became Judea and Galilee, which today we identify as Palestine. Now where the conflict arises in the reason that there is so much war over the land in the Middle East is, remember, land authenticates identity. Whoever has the land claims the call of God. That's what Arabs believe, that's what Israelites know, and that's what we must understand. Whoever has the land, right, that little strip of, that little path of land, whoever has that is authenticating their identity as God's people. But very clearly in the Bible, God only gave that land to Abraham and his descendants, and his descendants meaning, in the Bible, the Israelites. We're going to see coming up in this series why there's so much conflict and confusion over who the descendants are. But let's be clear from the beginning, the descendants of Abraham are the Israelites, physically and in the land, the land of Canaan. Now here's a question, why then is today, why is it not called Canaan? Why is it not called Galilee or Judea? Why is it called Palestine? From the very beginning of that land's history, God intended his people, the Israelites, to inhabit that land. That is their land. It's been their land. It, it, it was their land for 2,100 years before it was called Palestine. It was their land for 2,600 years before Islam rose up as a religion. It's always been their land. It's always been their land. In 1948, the United Nations identified that, authenticated it as their land, their state, the state of Israel. 
So what's going on? Well, it's interesting. In A.D. 135, after a conflict the Romans had with the Jews, and notice it's, it's in the second century, not anywhere near the time of Christ, not anywhere near the events of the New Testament or the Old Testament, but, but in the second century, 135 A.D., after, after the Romans had quelled a conflict with the Jews, to insult and to spite the Jews, they renamed Galilee and Judea Palestine. Palestine is a Latinized term for the word Philistine. And if you know your Old Testament, you know that the primary dominant warring people of Canaan when the Israelites came in were the Philistines. They were a coastal people on the Mediterranean Sea. And they were they at war with the Israelites as soon as the Israelites came into the land. Uh, remember Goliath. You remember the story of David Goliath? Goliath is a Philistine. They battled the Philistines through the time of David, and then finally the Philistines were destroyed. The Romans, in an intentional insult to the Jews, whom they knew, whom they knew had a right to the land, changed the name of the land to reflect the Jews' worst enemy. And since that day, the worst enemies of the Jews have tried to claim Palestine. Isn't that interesting? And God even works through that history to bring about his greatest plans. The Bible teaches there is a spiritual theological connection Land is not just something physical. The place is not just something physical. It is woven into our spiritual history with God. Now, first of all, Abraham is identified by Christians in the New Testament as the forefather of our faith because of, uh, because of his faith. In order to obey, he had to be faithful. He had to act in faith. And that's exactly what he did. He followed God in faith. So our spiritual heritage, our spiritual bloodline goes all the way back to Abraham. That has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do with being born again in Christ. And ever since Eden, God has promised us a place of our own that belongs to those who love God. We were cast out of Eden because of Adam and Eve's sin. And right away, ingrained in human nature is the desire for a home. You ever wondered why you get homesick? What is that? Why do you care? Why do you want a home? Well, because you're not home. Spiritually, you're not home yet. But if you've come to faith in Christ, you are home with your God. You are in relationship with Christ. So the land God promises, and the New Testament picks up on this, book of Hebrews, the Apostle Paul, over and again, understands that image of home, that image of the land to foreshadow believers in heaven. Our eternal land, our eternal place, our eternal destiny. Jesus himself said in John chapter 14, I go and prepare a what? Place for you. You're going to have a home. Finally, have a home if you follow Christ. So God's first promise, now being fulfilled in Christians, of any ethnicity, any nationality, those who follow Christ is the promise of a place. Second is the promise of a people. Now this, we zero in on this, and it's not hard to see, but God's promise was to Abraham, I will make you a nation. 
I will make you a nation. Same thing as saying, I will make you a people. And not just a nation, but a great nation. A nation in which I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Now in the mind of Abraham, this is every, every man's dream. Make my name great. You got, guys, if you've got any ambition in your life, you know this. Put my name on a plaque. Let my name go viral on social media, but for good reason. God says to Abraham, I will make your name great. The promise will unfold. He doesn't know how that is yet. But he knows that here, me, I'm just one of three boys born in Chaldea. And now I'm going to be the father of a great, great nation. Today, Palestine, what is known in the, in the modern world as Palestine, is not populated as a state. It's not a nation. It's populated by mixed ethnicities of people in Arab descent, Egyptians, Syrians, so forth. But it's important to understand that Palestine is not a nation. It has no legal right as being a nation. It's not a state. But in 1948, the United Nations designated, authenticated, Israel as a nation state. Israel has a government. Israel has an economy. Israel has an army. They're a nation state. That was a fulfillment uh, uh, to a degree of this prophecy. That to be a people, they would have boundaries and borders. To be a people, they would, they would be a nation, just as God said that they would be a nation. And that nation would be validated by other nations. This foreshadows the coming of Christ and Christians who are now the people of God. See, the blessing, the way that Abraham's lineage and heritage would bless the nations would be by uh, being the lineage of Christ. Christ would come through the heritage of Abraham, the heritage of faith. He didn't come through the heritage. It didn't start with Moses and the law. It started with grace, with Abraham. And he came through that heritage of faith and that heritage of grace through Abraham, the Israelite. Uh, the term translated great nation in this is not numbers, it's significance. Uh, it refers to something that everyone recognizes is set apart. That they would be God's people through whom the Christ, the Messiah, would come to save the world. Abraham himself didn't even know that at this point, but that was God's plan and that was God's prophecy that through the lineage of Abraham, Christ would be born. So God promises a place. And he promises a place for his people. And then here he also promises those people that they will have a relationship with him. The idea of blessing here refers not to material things, but it refers to relationship. That people will know God who are uh, blessed by Abraham and his lineage, his offspring. They will come to know the one true God. And this foreshadows again the gospel of Jesus Christ because the only way to know Christ, the only way to know God is to know Christ. The only way to know the Father is to know Jesus Christ. And he is born through this lineage. Always around Christmas or so and probably then around Easter, uh, especially with the kind of 
postmodern relativism and, and people don't care about history, all that going on anymore in our culture. Now and then you'll hear people speculate that, that maybe Jesus uh, was not Jewish. Uh, maybe he was from Africa. Maybe he was from Ethiopia. Maybe, in fact, there's one version that's very prominent that he was Asian from the continent of Asia. In short, they say he can pretty much be whoever you want him to be. No, he can't. Because he has prophesied as the blessing of the nations through his father, spiritual father Abraham, through that lineage, we come to Christ. He is an Israelite through this. Uh, when all this conflict started, uh, a very popular congressperson put on social media that Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. And that's not only historically inaccurate, as I pointed out a little while ago, it wasn't even called Palestine in Jesus' day. There's no way he could have been a Palestinian Jew. Uh, but it's also theologically inept because the timeline of God, the biblical context, requires Christ to be born at the time he was born in the people, in the nation, to save us from our sins. God's timing is always perfect. So Christians, this foreshadows Christianity, this foreshadows the coming of Christ, this foreshadows Christ as a blessing to the nations, to those who would call on him. And that brings us to the third promise. The third promise is the promise of a purpose. Abraham, God says, I, your job is not to just go settle on the land and farm. You have a bigger, a bigger uh, uh, purpose in all of this and everything that happens in the world, Abraham. You are designed for a purpose. God selected a people. He gave them a land, but their, their, their purpose was not to exclude themselves from everyone else. Uh, their purpose was to become the blessing to the nations. In verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, to be blessed in this passage is to know God. And we understand now that means to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Uh, the purpose, therefore, passed down. We understand this foreshadows the gospel. Passed down to every generation, this foreshadows the gospel. The people foreshadow the church. And the purpose foreshadows the gospel. We are God's people. And we are stewards of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who trust Christ as their Savior will experience, just as we do who know Christ, a personal relationship with Christ. But notice what God says. He says, I'll bless those who bless you, those who believe you, those who care for you, those who love on you, those who are not enemies of Israel. He says to Abraham, I will bless them, but I will curse those who show contempt for you. Simply put, they're not getting off scot-free. Just as the Bible says, those who persecute Christians, God will bring vindication. God will judge those who persecute Christians. We are the fulfillment in Christ of this call and of this promise and of this prophecy. If you look on the world today, it's, it's, it's hard not to see what's going on, what's happened to the Jews over generations, and what's happened to the Israelites, what's happening to them even now, it's not hard to look at that and say, what in the world is going on? This tiny people group. Do you know right now there's 8 billion people in the world? 
You know how many of those are Jews? 15 million. 15 million Jews out of 8 billion. That's about 0.2%. And yes, I looked it up. Why does anybody care what the Jews are doing? Why does anybody care about that small strip of land that belongs to them? Why do they keep being attacked by the 22 surrounding Arab nations? Because they're God's people. And those nations and this world generally hold contempt for them. And what did God say would happen? Yeah, they're not getting off scot-free. They're not getting off scot-free. The gospel is fulfilled as we are now stewards of the blessing of God, as Jesus came through the lineage of Abraham. The gospel is fulfilled. The Bible is fulfilled. The word of God is fulfilled as you and I take the gospel to our generation. Uh, One of the reasons that this series, I believe, is so important at this time is because you and I need to understand who we are in history. Uh, We have diminished Christianity to the notion that Christians are church goers and and, and in my lifetime my only obligation as a Christian is to go to church or or if we are out of that notion we are followers of Christ devoted dedicated disciples we've got to be careful also not to diminish that to the notion that everything started with the book of Acts and, and that's where Christians were envisioned the first time We need to get a hold of who we are in human history because our inclination is to see everything happening in the church and in the world from ground level, horizontally, our point of view. But when we look to the scripture, we see it from God's point of view. That's why the Bible is called revelation. Revelation, by definition, is God telling us what we would not know if God had not told us. That's the Bible. And we, if we don't see it from his perspective, we get caught up in this perspective, this ground-level perspective. And I want to give you an illustration of this outside of what we're talking about today. Uh, marriage. Most people in the world, and, and sadly, most Christians, see marriage from a ground level. It's about two people uh, making a commitment, making promises to live together, preferably for life. Uh, they make those promises, they, they, they recite those vows, and now they're married and they have a relationship that, that we hope, with work, will last a lifetime. That's a good thing. Marriage is healthy. Marriage is where we're supposed to have kids, raise our children. All these things are true. And we see those from the ground floor, from a horizontal perspective. Whether you are married, been married, were married, want to be married, never want to be married, all those things are true. And you see them from a ground perspective. That's how the world would agree with us. They would identify with that. But then we see in the Word of God the vertical perspective. We see God's perspective. We see that marriage is infused with a theological purpose that we must grasp to really get what marriage is. Ephesians chapter 5. It represents Christ and the church. Husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, submit to, respond to your husband when he loves you that way. Wow. Your marriage, Christian, 
is actually a living parable, an example of the relationship that Jesus Christ has with his bride, the church. You're not going to see that from ground level, are you? And if we look upon what's happening in our world from ground level, it's easy to get to, to, to misunderstand, to think that Israel this and Palestine that. No, we've got to see it from God's point of view. And that's the purpose, I hope, of this series. I hope this series helps us see what's happening in the Middle East from God's point of view so that we will see, Christians, we will see ourselves in history from God's point of view. That's as the church who, who yields the gospel, we are stewards of the gospel, but that's also as you, Christian, in your walk with Christ. Do you understand the significance of you living in this day and time, of you serving Christ in this day and time, of you being a steward personally of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you see the significance of that? Did you know today is the 20th anniversary of Facebook. Do you know that? It seems now, though, that every day when I'm on Facebook, well, every day that I'm on Facebook, I'm not on Facebook every day. But when I'm on Facebook, it seems like there's a constant notification from somebody, I've been hacked. I've been hacked. Identity theft, apparently, is rampant on Facebook. And you would think after 20 years, Mark Zuckerberg would have figured this out. You would think with all the technology that he'd have figured out a way to keep people from stealing other people's identity. So when I don't go on Facebook and I, and I'm, I see you and I've friended you, I really should know that that's who you are. That that's actually your page, your profile. And that's who you are. I need to know who you are. Well, folks, the world needs to know who we are. If we don't know who we are, if you don't know who you are as a Christian, how's the world going to know? How's the world going to understand grace? How's the world going to understand the gospel? If you and I are confused about it, how are we going to fulfill our purpose in God's history if we don't even know who we are? Now let's get even a little more personal, shall we? Remember how Abraham started? God called Abraham, get up and go to the land that I will show you. Leave your family, your relatives, and go to the land that I will show you. So believers, let me ask you a question. You ever wonder why it seems like God's not doing anything significant in your personal life? When was the last time you obeyed God's word to go, to do, to act, to say what he wants you to do, how he wants you to behave? When was the last time you obeyed God's word to change what God's telling you to change? Because that's where you're sitting. You're still in error if you haven't obeyed God's command and his call to go. And the thing about it, if we are not obedient personally to Christ, we won't ever get to the promise he has for us personally. And maybe you're wondering why things haven't changed much. Well, maybe that's why. 
But God has a call on your life. Your participation in this great plan of his. It starts with your relationship with him. And maybe you've never trusted Jesus as your savior. I'm going to give you an opportunity to, to do that in just a minute. That's the first call on your life. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Leave behind all the past. Be forgiven of that. All the struggles. All the brokenheartedness. All the sin. Confess that to Christ. And come to Christ. Because if you've noticed, if you just keep doing what you've been doing, probably not much has changed, has it? And you might be really religious. Good for you. Glad you're here. But being religious will not change your life. Jesus will change your life. Christ and Christ alone. Confessing your sin to him. Obeying his call to come and follow Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, how we thank you, Father, for establishing us in the great and grand history of God. Uh, Father, in this moment, we pause and we pray for those on the other side of the world, especially Christians, God, who seek to serve you in the midst of conflict and war and nations that are at war. We pray for the people of God. We pray for Israel. We pray, Father, for peace. And we pray, God, that we would understand who we are through the word of God. Not take the world's word for it, but take your word for who we are in Christ. Father, I pray for those in this room and at home. Believers, we know we trusted Jesus as our Savior, been forgiven of our sin. And yet, God, we seem to waffle in obedience. We seem to struggle in the place where we are. Father, show us that this morning. If it's time to advance forward in faith, if you've been calling us to trust you for something new, something great, God, how I pray we would do that today. And Father, Father, maybe there's other burdens or struggles we have we need to bring to you. Maybe there's heartache. Maybe there's sin we need to confess. God, show us that as well, that we would trust you with that today. And Father, for those here in this room and at home that have never answered the call of Christ to start with, never said, yes, I will come to Christ, never confessed their sins and repented of those sins, God, for those, I would pray this prayer today with them, that by faith, they would trust Christ as their Savior. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, and I know that I can't save myself. I know, God, just as you do, that I've been religious. I'm even a good person most of the time, but nothing changes. Father, I, I pray, God, I pray, God, that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. And I believe, God, that you raised him from the grave. He's alive today. And I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I repent of that sin and leave it behind and leave my past behind. That today, Father, by faith, I can follow Christ. Come into my life. Cleanse me, forgive me, that I would follow Christ. Heavenly Father, for all who prayed that prayer, for believers that, that need to start over today, God, we give you this time of response. And I pray you do a work in our midst here and, and at home, God, in our hearts, that when this day's over, we'd be different. We would know who we are in Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray.